Hello, it's Billy. How are you feeling today? I hope you're doing good more than I hope you're doing great. And if not, then hopefully this week's episode of Even Baddies Wear Helmets might lend a hand. I'm positively buzzing to say that this episode is about writing for animation. The sheer variety of animated shows on offer is simply mind-blowing, and often they manage to have an appeal that reaches beyond their young audiences. We've all probably watched a cartoon at some point in our lives, but when it comes to writing them, we might wonder what are the rules, and how is writing for animation any different to writing live action? Our guest today is Stephanie Simpson. Stephanie has worked on all sorts of shows, including Octonauts and Arthur, and is the head writer on one of my personal favourite animated series, Netflix's Hilda. The series is based on the graphic novels by Luke Pearson, and the Hilda of the title is a brave, adventurous young girl who leaves her home in the wilderness to live in the city of Trollberg. There she makes new friends and encounters elves, witches, trolls, and more. I'm really excited that this is our first international episode with Stephanie joining me from LA. Hopefully there won't be any technical hiccups, but wherever you are, I really hope you enjoy it. Hello. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Los Angeles. So, you know. I mean, not to brag yeah. over here <laughs> in England. Wow, kick me while we're down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. But oh, it's lovely. I'm glad. I'm really glad the weather's nice. Um, I'm here to talk about writing for animation. So I will, I will just leap in and ask, how did you become a writer? You know, was storytelling always a part of your life? Oh my goodness. Uh, actually, yes, it was. I was not always a writer, and um, but I always told stories. And it all starts with my mom, actually, who was a children's theater uh, professor, actually. She taught drama at a university in a really small town in Oklahoma. And my mom every summer put on uh, children's plays that basically took over the entire town. Writing was always something I loved, but I felt like it was intensely personal to me and I almost didn't want anyone to tell me how to do it if that makes sense yeah later on I started though to write plays because as a woman I felt like there just weren't that many juicy parts for us let's face it Mm -hmm. um and especially plays about the kinds of people I had grown up with (laughs) namely my crazy relatives in Oklahoma (laughs) so I I wrote a play um about four women and it was uh, had only women in it, I'm very proud to say. And it did pretty well there in, uh, you know, the off-Broadway off circuit in New York City. And that's the first time I thought, okay, I can actually write and I can bear it if other people come into the room and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, um, my mom continued to teach drama to kids. And she, we, she had moved to Dallas, Texas, a much bigger city than the little ones we lived in in Oklahoma. And she said, hey, um, this weekend I'm going to this brainstorming session and the guy who's invited me seems to think I understand kids and he wants me to come, but you're coming. And I told him, I can't. My daughter's coming from New York to visit and I don't want to miss out on that. And he said, well, why don't you bring her? We'll pay her 300 bucks. So my mom was like, do you want to make 300 bucks and go sit in a room for two days? Yes. (laughs) And I said, are you kidding? (laughs) So that... I went to that um, brainstorming session and the guy wanted to do a show 
about a little dog. And I mean, I was in my 20s and I had never even seen a TV script before, to be honest. But that show turned into Wishbone, which was a live action show on PBS that in which a, a Jack Russell Terrier imagined himself in scenes from classic literature. And that was the first show I ever did. And it was also an idea that I came up with. Um, and it was incredible because I went from zero to 60. I literally went to Bar Borders Books and Music and bought a William Goldman uh, book that showed his screenplays. And I sat down and figured out the screenplay format. I was embarrassed to say that I didn't know what it was. So, and this was the before the days of final draft. This is how old I am now. And, and so I was like, oh, okay, okay. That's how you do it. It's kind of like a play. Okay, so you put the action there. Oh, okay, interior, exterior. Okay, I get it, I get it. So I always tell people, um, say yes on Friday and then figure it out by Monday. Like don't be intimidated if there's some something you don't know. Um, if you are a creative person and you have a passion for it, you will figure it out. And that that was it. That's how I started in kids TV. <laughs> now that was, that was a live action show. Uh, the beautiful thing about animation is that if you want to have, you know, if you want to write, you know, the city of Trollberg is on fire, uh, that's not going to require, you know, a huge special effects budget. Um, it's, 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 it's just amazing. You can have action sequences and beautiful images and moments in animation <clears throat> that are so much harder sometimes to reproduce in live action. Um, mm -hmm. And that was the first beauty of animation that I, I um, discovered when I started writing for it was the freedom to use uh, images to tell stories in ways that I just had never gotten to do before. And I, I love that about animation. I mean, that is such a fantastic story. And to that, the sense that like, the real magic of storytelling has always been there. And it's really interesting to me as well that, that your mum worked in making content for young audiences. And yes. that's something that you've kind of taken up the mantle with as well. And so, so you've written on several fantastic and, and very popular uh, popular animated shows, including Octonauts and Arthur. But I mean, the show I really want to go into detail is Hilda because I am a huge fan of it. But also yes. I think it's um, it's super interesting from, from loads of perspectives as an adaptation, as an animation, a piece for young audiences. So um, so Luke Pearson, who created the uh, graphic novels, was approached by a number of production companies about adapting it into a series. And I wondered, how did you get brought onto that project? And, and then how did, was it oh. Silvergate convince him that they were kind of the safest pair of hands? Yes, yes. Kurt Mueller, who was the uh, executive at Silvergate, um, whom I had worked with on Octonauts. So we were good friends for many years and had a lot of trust in each other. He called me and said, um, we got the rights to this amazing graphic novel, Hilda. I don't know if you've seen it and I'm embarrassed to say that I hadn't. And he said, I just think you would really love it. And I want you to take a look at it and see if you'd like to adapt it. And of course, um, I looked at it and I fell in love with it immediately. <laughs> and what was beautiful about, um, the whole thing from the beginning is that I think Kurt really had earned the trust of Luke and of Nobrow that we would be a place where the original beauty of the books and the, the kind of subtlety and nuance, but at the same time, you know, wildness of the books would be preserved in whatever we did to adapt it. 
So, mm. um, yeah. So, and then, and then the other thing that happened is I came to New York for three days and, and sat in a room to kind of think about um, how we would adapt it. And at the end of that three days, kind of talked to Luke about my thoughts. And that's always an interesting conversation because we'd never met. I'm this weird lady and, you know, um, <laughs> what, what am I going to say? And it was just, we had an instant um, rapport and um, our sensibilities and our love of what makes Hilda Hilda um, just came together in a, in a really lovely way. And so from the very beginning, there was just a sense of trust and also a sense that this was a really special project. I mean, I think of all my projects as special projects. I don't know how people do it if they don't deeply mm. care about it, but definitely I think that was, that was what I hope anyway, I think earned Luke's uh, trust in our working on it. So. And can you tell me about that um, early development of the series then? I'm, I'm really fascinated about how you kind of, in that initial sitting down, where did you start with adapting those novels? Well, this was interesting. So <laughs> the first thing was to think about what age group we were going to target. So mm. I, uh, Kurt and I obviously had had great success with preschool um, stuff with the, with the Octonauts. And there was at first uh, with Silvergate, there was a question, could we make this a preschool show? Which I um, felt like we could not. <clears throat> for for why I love preschool. But the in, in those Hilda stories, you need to feel as if she really might get eaten by the troll. Mm -hmm. um, even though eventually we unpack the fact that the troll has a valid point of view and isn't being a, being a troll doesn't mean that you're, you know, so horrible that you don't deserve respect and understanding, but that's different from preschool where really the trolls would, would need to be a lot friendlier, a lot faster. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no and, one's getting eaten. <laughs> exactly. And then also Hilda, the, the sense of independence that Hilda has in the books where she's, you know, out on these adventures by herself without a lot of supervision is another, I think, important element of who she is as a character and of mm. the, uh, uh, you know, what's fun about the book. So that would not translate into preschool television either. Um, so, but I promised that I would try, that I would spend a couple of days uh, thinking about, well, if I made this a preschool show, here's what I would do. And I uh, very quickly felt that we would lose all, like I said, the wildness, the sense of possibility, and the, the sense of danger. Of course, Hilda, that's all balanced with the sense of coziness and warmth and mm -hmm. kindness. But in some ways, the coziness means nothing if it's not juxtaposed against the danger, you know? Absolutely. And the, and the sense of, of the world is not entirely in my control. Um, so that, that, was, um, that was an important decision right off the bat. So after that, it was, where will we set the series? Because there was this idea that there's a possibility of just keeping her in the wilderness, you know, forever and making it a show about her and just kind of a never ending cast of elves and trolls, which, you know, I could live with Alfer for the rest of my oh. life. I think he deserves <laughs> his own show. But um, I mean, we had Rasmus on the other day. I and saw that. Just, <laughs> I, I was beside myself because Alpha is my favorite character. I relate to him and his love of paperwork intensely. Oh my gosh. 
too. I don't know what that says about me, but just I see a spreadsheet and I'm like, yep, I'm here. I'm arrived. Here's my people. <laughs> I think that says a lot of good things about you. Oh, thank um, you. Yes, I'm grateful to hear that. I wish I were more of an alpha. I aspire to be alpha. I see a spreadsheet <laughs> and my head explodes and I have to go lie down. But I love, that's why I love alpha so much though. He gives me great confidence that there's somebody out there who's going to make it okay. Um, but I, I think the next thing was, yeah, is she going to stay in the wilderness or I love the midnight giant. I love the fact that at the end of it, you know, her house is destroyed. Um, and then I, and at that point bird parade, I think was just about to come out. And so she was going to go to Trollberg. And to me, it felt like we should set the rest of the series actually in Trollberg. And the question of, you know, could this girl who's been on her own all this time, could she make a move not only into a city, but into the world of humans? I mean, it's one thing mm -hmm. to kind of <laughs> interact with, with <laughs> giants and elves. It's another thing to make it with other kids, you know, that... <laughs> That might be even scarier to Hilda. Um, <laughs> I find that that's the that, that um, juxt juxtaposition between sort of yeah. the city of Trollberg and the wilderness and between humans and nature um, yes. is something that I find really, really fascinating, particularly because it feels like the show has quite a... Um, Get like environmentalist heart like Hilda is is yes. very aware of the, the impact that human beings have on on the natural world she feels this kind of duty to to protect it and I wondered what were those themes like it sounds like they were really important to you was that kind of environmentalist message something you were trying to work into the show uh, absolutely and what's so great is it's a message that um is implicit in the show it's just who mm. she is it's it's built into the storytelling. So it's not anything that has to even be laid on top of it. It doesn't have to, um, it doesn't have to be almost even a message so much as a point of view, a way of looking at the world, a way of interacting with, um, with the world around you. And, a, and I think that drives her character. And so that makes it feel very organic to the series. And I love that a character who sees the world that way. And so then mm -hmm. we, the audience see it that way too. Um, yeah, I think, I think it, it was important to us and it was important, equally important that all of nature, whether it's a water spirit or uh, a tree or a rock, um, has um, great value and Hilda always sees that value. She always mm -hmm. observes things that other people might miss or kind of gloss over. And, and she has a real love of those details. And she's, she's not human-centric in the sense that she really sees the importance of other beings and other life forms around her, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, um, and has great respect for them and curiosity about them. And I yes. think that's the other beautiful thing about Hilda. So, mm -hmm. so it was, it was definitely a part of it. And, and again, I grew up in a part of the world where I spent a lot of time outside in fields and next to lakes and looking at stars. And I'm so grateful that I had that as part of my childhood because it, I felt much more comfortable not being the center of the universe, but being a part of an amazing universe. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, um, that's something we definitely wanted to get across in the show as well. 
And I mean, it comes across so nicely. And, and I think as well, particularly at the moment with, you know, oh. the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the climate crisis. And, and I think for the younger generation, especially, it's something that it is very much on on our radar and feels you know what yes. but but at the same time like you said this the show doesn't you know hit you over the head with it 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 really just communicates the the respect that that she has for for the natural world and for things that aren't human and i mean across two series as well we see her as as a character really grow and develop and you know she's brave and she's loyal and she's kind but she's also got a temper and she can be <laughs> yeah. reckless and i think that's why she's she's such a great character for for kids the young people to relate to because she isn't isn't perfect at all um and i wondered what what were your priorities kind of having done that first series got her into trollberg for 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 developing her character into the second series Oh, I'm so glad you, yes, asked that. So definitely a priority was that we we felt like in the first season, we fell in love with Hilda. We, we saw who she was, but the second season was an opportunity to show even more of her flaws um, and to show how being her friend isn't always easy and how it can get a little bit messy and how you can misinterpret certain things and then have to live a little bit past what your initial impression was, mm. if that makes sense. Um, so I love that she has a temper. I love that she um, will just march right in and, and try to take action even, even when she doesn't really have the full picture. <laughs> just, <laughs> um, just go for it. Straight yeah, in. <laughs> just go for it. Exactly. At the same time, I think, what was important to me was to show that you can, um, uh, this is a subtle thing to get across, uh, but you can show, you can have good intentions and you can think you understand what's going on. And then you can get into a situation where you realize it's much more complicated than you thought. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of growing up and learning to, um, just learning nuance and learning kind yeah. of like and, and to manage your expectations and I think especially I mean I'm always sort of struck by her relationship with her mom Joanna especially and that the way oh, that yeah. that kind of shifts and shapes and and, and changes as, as as the series develops particularly kind of the the conflict that is there sometimes is is really lovely to watch because it's it's their relationship isn't simple and it's it's no. got so many different layers and yeah, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. It's not really a question at the end of that. It's just a statement. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you say that, though, because that is one of the things I'm proudest about in this series is, and, and I mean, one of the things I loved in the source material, the way that Luke had set up their relationship also, um, and then just getting to build on that has just been a huge gift to me as a writer and as a mom. I, you know, I have a son and... Um, we're very close, but the mother-kid dynamic is complicated, and it should be. How can it not be? Mm-hmm. And often, I think, in children's television, we flatten that out. We either remove it entirely from the equation, or we make the, the parents into kind of buffoons, or we make them into the adversary, or we make them, or they're just so incredibly nice and sweet that it makes you want to vomit, you know? But, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, I have really enjoyed um, getting to write a complex mother-daughter 
relationship. Um, and that feeling that you have as a mom where you, you want your child to be adventurous and get out there and be themselves. And then you've got those moments when you think maybe you could just be a little less yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I can just feel my own mum nodding from a distance. Like she's not in the room, but I can see it. I can see her face. (laughs) And I thought, you know, if you're watching this show with your kid, it'll be nice to actually have that represented for once in a story. Um, Because it's entirely possible to have both of those feelings about your child at the same time. And it comes Mm -hmm. out of love. You know, it comes out of wanting to protect them. Um, And then, and then it's also that really frustrating thing where you, ultimately, you're not going to be able to protect them. You're just going to have to give them, you know, some tools and a cucumber sandwich and a thermos of tea (laughs) and like send them out into the world and hope for the best. I always say that being a parent is like you have total responsibility and zero control. And that's... That's the reality of it. So this is my chance. It's a horrible thing to weigh up. (laughs) It is. It's terrible. But it's also, um, I think, very real. And and, and I also like the idea that Joanna, you know, that she she herself as a kid was probably adventurous as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's hard for her sometimes to suddenly be in the role of the person who's saying, no, be careful. No, don't. Maybe not that. You know. Um, So. I'm glad you like that. I it's one of my favorite things to write in the show, and I, th- I think it's part of that the the broader way in which the show sort of weighs up those really fantastical elements with the more kind of domestic issues. That I mean, something that's kind of come up um, a few yes. times in, in conversations that I've had for for the podcast is that people have said that kids telly can go to those places that are amazing and wonderful and sort of dreamlike, um, yes. but at the same time, it's always going to be brought back to what is it that that yes. children and young people are actually dealing with on a day-to-day basis and how can we we use those fantastic elements to to address those things and to help them work through them and I think that's something that um that Hilda does really wonderfully um I mean and, and again like I think that is why it's got such a broad appeal and I mean something that has been said a lot about the show is that it appeals to both children and and adults and I wondered for you why do you think it's managed to sort of resonate with so many different people well I think for the first thing is that our approach to the characters and their emotions and their responses has been to keep it as authentic and grounded as possible, but also to have a broad range of responses. So I love writing David and Frida. I love David because he's this anxious <laughs> kid. And I feel like often anxious kids get the message, you know, you need to really, especially in children's literature, the kid who's like willing to be brave is the one that's always the hero, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the yeah. anxious kid, it's like, you should really be more like that. And I love writing a character who actually being anxious has its you know, benefits. Sometimes mm. it's good to have the person who notices that there's like a giant monster in the closet, you know, before everybody else. Mm. And that should be celebrated. And the same for Frida, her little type A, you know, achievement oriented <laughs> personality, <laughs> which can be very annoying, but also can be really helpful uh, in mm. a moment when you really just need to bring it and stay focused. Um, but I think that keeping the the real the real kids real and then also giving the the fantastical characters a reality of an inner life as well i mean alfred has a definite personality and point mm-hmm. of view and way of responding as does 
a giant, as does the raven. And they all feel uh, grounded in the way people actually respond mm -hmm. uh, to relationships and to challenges. So that's, that's been, um, I think, really, really important. And then the other aspect of it is to treat the fantastical as if it is part of the everyday. And that was a genius thing that Luke had discovered in the books. He was inspired by some source material where the Scandinavian um, folklore, where they would write about, um, you know, house elves or Nissas, for example, but write about it in a very matter of fact way. So it was like, <laughs> if your Nissa is giving you trouble, you must A, cut an onion, <laughs> B, rub it on your you know, knuckles, C, take five steps in the northwest direction, you know, and D, sit down and, and nap for five minutes, and then your Nissa problem will be solved. I mean, it's just like <laughs> these crazy things, but they were, they were, they were this odd combination of fantastical and very down to earth. That's so wonderful. It was so wonderful. So I really spent a lot of time um, reading those accounts and kind of steeping myself in that attitude. And I think that definitely infused the series, um, you know, with that kind of mix of the fantastical and the down to earth. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide our fantastical creatures. There's no like rule where only certain people can see them. You know, they're just like raccoons that get in your garbage. Like. <laughs> You have a you have a relationship one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love that that point about the the um the fantastic creatures having as much complexity as the ordinary people that yes. you kind of and their their you know their desires and their problems are just as ordinary yes. as everyone else's. It's it's the same stories in a way. It's the same kind of oh you've fallen yes. out with your friend or you've lost something or it's yes. oh that's that's just really that's really interesting. Um. Yeah. It makes it so much fun to write those characters also because then you can you just start to think, okay, well, what would I really want if I were this vitra? Like what would annoy mm. me? People jumping <laughs> on my head all day, you know, how I would feel no respect, like what, and just very realistically thinking it through emotionally. And I just have so much fun with that. It's great. I also, I hear there is like a 70 minute episode of <gasps> Hilda in the works. Is this true? And this is it, true. It, this is true. And if you're, I mean, as much as you're allowed to talk about it, what's it been like taking the show to that kind of longer form format? Oh my gosh. It was, it's actually easier than you might think because we always have trouble. <laughs> we always end up cutting a lot from our scripts. Our initial drafts, you know, will be, will be like 16 pages because <laughs> once you get into it and once you start exploring the world and the characters and you want to give every character their moment and their arc, it, you know, it could, it could take quite a while is what I'm saying. Um, so it was actually kind of a relief to have uh, 70 minutes to work with. And we still, we still ended up cutting things even from our 70 <laughs> minutes. It's embarrassing. Um, but it's beautiful. I think people are really going to enjoy it. I think what's nice is that, um, Obviously, when you're watching a season, there's a very, you know, we have individual episodes, but there's kind of an ongoing bigger story as well. And so it's kind of fun to take in one big story in one big gulp. And it was mm. fun to write it that way and produce it that way as well. Um, and yeah, you kind of have the, yeah. that time and that space to really yeah. sort of dig in as opposed to sort of have to 
to maybe truncate a little bit or, or cut off when you're like, oh, I wanted to just oh, go into that a little bit more. Exactly. Um, and then you didn't have to parcel things out too and drop little hints here and there. You could just like get right into it. And in the next mm-hmm. scene, you could actually answer the question that you had set up in the previous scene. And that was really satisfying and fun. Um, oh, I'm so excited to see yeah, that. I feel very, like very ready. Are, I think you're going <laughs> to like it. I do. I think it's going to, I think it's, yes, I'm very excited too. But I can't say much more. <laughs> Yeah, I got it. It's top secret. Yes, it it really is top secret. Have yet to sign the right paperwork. (laughs) Oh, Alfred, you would not believe what Alfred presented. I mean, it was pages and pages. It took a couple of days and many stamps in order to get it all in order. So, so, I mean, you've worked on on a great number of, of animated shows, um, and it's it's a medium that offers, as you say, a lot of, of freedom and fun to writers. Uh, but mm. for those who are new to it, what do you think are the sort of really key things to bear in mind when when writing for animation? Oh well, the first thing I think is that whatever is going on internally in a character, you're going to have to find some way to make it visual, mm. um, whether that's That could be as simple as, you know, you pop into a little fantasy sequence in their own head, you know, where they're nervous in front of their classroom. And so they look out and everyone is, is, you know, a Bigfoot monster sitting at their (laughs) desk. I mean, you know, that simple. Um, But you you can't count on in live action often, you know, you can count on an actor's um, face or um, you can count on a kind of. well, even in live action, you need to show what it is you're feeling. But I feel like in mm-hmm. animation, writers often underestimate the importance of writing the reaction moment. So it's not mm-hmm. just about writing what happens. It's about writing the moment that the person responds to what happened, the character, the creature. Oh. Um, and I think that is a key thing in animation that I've really <clears throat> learned and also really enjoy. Um, and I think... Um, the other aspect of animation that's important is a sense of humor. Even when you write something that's serious and moody, there is, um, I feel like a moment, something that's funny, a character being able to do, you know, fall down or drop something or roll their eyes or just those little moments of humor in animation, I feel like are even more important somehow in an animated piece than they are in a, in a live action piece and that the writer needs to find each character's uh, sense of humor, each character's mm-hmm. way of being funny. And it doesn't have to be broad always, um, but I think humor is just an important aspect of animation writing and in just anim- and writing for kids in general because humor mm-hmm. is the way you you kind of rebel a little bit against the seriousness of the moment. And I think that's an important rebellion that yeah. we need more of that as grownups. And as kids, we definitely need to encourage that little m- moment of uh, finding the humor in the serious, not being able afraid, not being afraid to laugh even when things are dark, you know, um, in fact, that's probably when you really should start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though. I think, I mean, especially, yeah. Like during lockdown, animation has been sort of like a safe place for me. Like it's gone to the place where I'm like, this is where I feel good. This is, it's, you know, it's, and as you say, it's not always 
the stories aren't always happy or joyful or whatever but there's there's just a real fun and a real kind of it does it feels cheeky it's that kind of rebelliousness that that I'm gonna laugh no matter what is is really lovely um oh and do you think is it for writers who've been kind of you know sort of writing live action for a while is it easy to make a transition to animation or do, to sort of live action writers struggle a little bit with with the form Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I to a great degree, it depends on the writer. I think if you're a live action writer who's long loved animation, it probably isn't that hard. But mm. I think at first I have seen writers struggle a bit because um, actually I've seen comedy writers surprisingly struggle when they go into animation because they forget that um, they have, again, this issue of writing not just the funny line, but the action that goes with it, the response mm-hmm. that goes with it. Setting up, um, you have to be a bit of a puppeteer in a weird way, or at <laughs> least I act out all the scenes myself. I mean, I talk to myself <laughs> like a crazy person when I'm doing it. And um, and I move around a lot. I mean, maybe that's my dance background, but it's hard for me to sit still even. I stand up and act it out for myself. Yeah, and yeah. you discover in the process of doing that, oh, well, oh, Alfred needs to like, you know, fall off the desk at that moment because that will be really, (laughs) that kind of thing. And you almost can't find those moments unless you get up on your feet a little bit. So I think some live action writers have been able to rely on actors to improv in the moment in front of the camera and find that, which is wonderful. But when you then translate that to animation, you kind of have to do that you have to preload that. Um, mm-hmm. Then when the voice actors come in, you know, as you've heard um, from Rasmus, like they can then play with that and find little mm-hmm. moments and, and, and improv and definitely um, work within that structure. But if you don't hand the animators and the actors the structure to begin with, they might not find it because... Mm-hmm. That there might not be the time or the place to do so. So I think that's what live action writers often struggle with. It's just that m- fact that they now have to basically direct that as a little movie in their heads um, in a more complete way. That's really interesting. As a writer as well, how much, how does your work kind of interact with the the visual development of, of the show itself? Like I, I kind of the animation pipeline is a little bit of a mystery to me, but sort of at what stage do you typically get to see what, what it's going to look like? And does yes. that then feed back into how you sort of write? Does that make yes. any sense? <laughs> it does make a lot of sense. And, and, and it sort of depends. So I've been fortunate in that I've been um, what they call the showrunner on the shows I work on or the head writer, which means that mm. I am I'm a producer, um, which means that I am writing, but when I'm writing, I'm also involved in the production meetings. I get to see the designs as they're evolving and give notes on them. I get to see animatics. I have calls with the director where he gets the script and says, I don't understand this or that, or what could this, you know, I had this funny idea. So I get to be involved in all aspects. And um, that is a great gift. And I really try then with the writers that are writing the other scripts, I usually, um, I, I see myself also as kind of their representative in the process too. So if they've written a script and obviously, um, I see my job in the producing of the script to, to be the voice of the writer, um, in that discussion and to say, Oh, actually, you know, what's funny about this is that he doesn't see it coming, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. so that, 
yeah, so that I get to be a part of all uh, uh, mm-hmm. kind of points on the timeline. But the pipeline is 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 mysterious. <laughs> Because you're you're kind of writing at the same time people are also designing. It's kind of a miracle that it all comes together, to be honest, um, to me still. And I've especially been doing Hilda it. as well, because it's across like the globe as oh, well, isn't it? Yes, You've got people in London, people in New York, people in like, yes. Canada. So it's crazy. There will be a group of writers who literally sit in L.A. around my dining room table, you know, because I'm not working out of an office here. So and then I'm not not in the quarantine, obviously, mm. but in the olden <laughs> days when we used to sit and breathe on each other. Good old um, days. Yeah, the good old days. And we could laugh, you know, two feet away from each other. Um, that would happen. And then, yes, there was then Mercury, you know, is, is in Canada. And then Luke is in London or not London in the U.K., and um, and the voices are, um, you know, it's recorded in the UK. So we're everywhere all the time. And it's crazy. And um, <laughs> everyone's either had too much coffee or that second glass of wine when you start working. <laughs> so, so everyone's in a different time frame of mind as well, which is always interesting. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, how much then does it, do you think it actually really helps as a writer to have an understanding of the sort of technical process of animation or, or should writers just kind of focus on the story and the characters and not really worry about that stuff? I think it depends on what it is, what kind of role you want to play in the overall production. For mm-hmm. me, I really love um, producing as well as writing. I, maybe I'm, I must be a secret control freak, but um, <laughs> I, or maybe it's not so secret, but I really want to be a part of that process of making it, come to life I but I think some for some writers that's very overwhelming and not that fun and and there are wonderful writers who just enjoy that process of of writing the script and then handing it over to all the other crazy people and saying please don't mess this up because I've done a very (laughs) nice job and um (laughs) and I hope that you can you know do justice to it and I think that it's fine to be in either category, honestly. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of pleasure to be had in both on both sides of that coin. And you just have to decide what suits your personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people don't like collaborating. It is a highly collaborative process to produce an animated show. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to talk to a lot of people and listen to a lot of people and their point of view and their idea. And then you really want that. You want people to be bringing their best ideas to it. And at the same time, there'll be that moment when you have to say, well, actually, I, that's great, but I think we're going to have to do it this way instead. Or how about if we meet in the middle? And if you don't enjoy that process, then you should just stay with writing the script, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. I don't know. Does that answer the question? Is that too yeah. wishy-washy? But I think that's a, that's a complicated answer, I guess. But I think no, it no, depends that, that makes on sense your... that, yeah. Yeah, that it, it depends on the writer rather than kind of there's a hard and fast rule for animation that you have to have some yeah. kind of understanding of how it works. But the, I think, yeah, that the story is important for the writer. That's the kind of main thing. But if that's if you are interested thing. in that stuff, then that's, yeah. that's only a bonus. Um, I mean, animation as well has is always been popular but it, it feels like and this might I don't know this might be an unfair assessment on, on my part but it feels like especially in the past few years there's been more of an awareness maybe of the kind of sheer variety of shows and, and shows that might sort of uh, ostensibly be for younger audiences drawing kind of broader and older fan bases as well um I wonder what are your hopes for 
animated shows going ahead is there anything that you'd particularly really like to see or work on or anything you found sort of particularly exciting about the shows that are being made at the moment oh. is that quite a broad question so yeah, it it's a great question it's a lot of fun to think about because um I think that you know definitely working on Hilda has been just a huge privilege in that it does have all those layers to it um mm. so I love that animation has exploded in this way and I love that um, we're beginning to see that it can function on so many different levels. It can be, which I think good children's literature does anyway. Mm. I mean, I can reread Charlotte's Web a hundred times, which I kind of have, embarrassingly enough, and always <laughs> get something new out of it. So I think that what I hope that we just keep doing is broadening the palette of the kinds of stories that we can tell in animation and also realizing that emotional depth um, and kind of artistic visual whimsy are not mutually exclusive that you can bring mm -hmm. together the kind of beauty and fantasy of an animated world it's kind of what we were talking about before with with um, an emotional reality that is very satisfying for both kids and adults on a certain mm. level. And I also think that the other great thing about right now is that opening, we're just, we just have so many more stories to tell. I guess that's what I would mm. say. And they, and stories um, from a diverse level of points of view, you know, different, so many different people who still haven't gotten to tell their story in animation and, and by that, I mean, you know, people who maybe even haven't traditionally thought animation was for them. This is a great time to step into it and say, look around and say, oh, wait, I, I really I do belong in this world. And my story can be told in this medium um, and to really step into that. So I just hope I just think that we should just keep going, basically. <laughs> going in a great direction which is this kind of international global perspective and kind of um not one with no limits either either limits in terms of emotional depth or limits in terms of you know fantastic visuals um and the marriage of those things to me is just magical every time and there's different ways to come at it but that's what i'm most excited about over and over again so i mean that that feels like a really lovely place to wrap up on but before we we do I just want to ask what your favorite children's show was when you were growing up or now even oh my god that <laughs> again is... pressure this is, yes I'm sorry this is going to be long silence in the podcast now and, and then you just hear a thud and then you just have to cut out quickly to some happy music um <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh this is such a huge question um I was I, I feel mean asking it because whenever I think about it myself I change my mind every two seconds I know I was going <laughs> to say I feel like it kind of depends on the day um but I think in terms of tv shows oh gosh what was my favorite tv show because I loved it as a block of shows you know you would kind of watch like scooby-doo and yes, yeah. <laughs> the Barbera thing. I mean, I guess if I'm really deeply honest with myself, I would have to say 
that Scooby Doo is definitely a <laughs> Scooby Doo is a solid one. I love Scooby Doo. <laughs> I think that for me, as a kid, over and over again, like seeing those. Um, first of all, when you were a little kid, like seeing teenagers do anything is so cool, yeah. <laughs> um, and believing that that was somehow like your future. Like I, yes. you know, and I. <laughs> Then you have- I love that that was Scooby Doo for you. I just think yes! that's like when I was a kid, it was always like, like sneaky. I mean, I don't know if, the, if Skins was a thing, but like that you'd watch these teenagers like go and partying and stuff. But Scooby Doo was a different level. Yes, it was a different level. And I thought I'd get to drive around in a van like that and solve mysteries. I mean, who doesn't want to live that life? Come on. I feel now I'm letting myself down with my with my adult life. I feel no. I should have a van and I should be solving mysteries. Me too. I'm gonna go get a van after this and I'm just gonna hit the road. Um, Maybe I'll fly to LA. I feel like I need to. I think you and I need a. We need a Scooby Doo road trip. We need to roll into town, unmask Mr. Winkles, and roll back out to the next mystery. I think that's what we need to do. I'm absolutely here for that. Um, Stephanie, it's been an absolute joy. And thank you so much for, for sharing your insight. And just, yeah, it's it's just been wonderful. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. This was so fun. You have been listening to Even Baddies Wear Helmets. The podcast was hosted by me, Billy Collins, produced by Cloda Chapman with music from Finley Stafford and our lovely logo was designed by Lucy Tiller. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find us on social media at Even Baddies Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe, share, tell your mates. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon.